well, this is a really special morning to be with you. And, um, and then we get the pleasure to look at the Word. And so let's do that together now. We want to turn to the Word because every Word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Um, I used to live in Salt Lake Valley myself, and so I have a great love for this valley, and I just so um, resonate with what Boyd just shared, which is to say, to look at this place and say, this is a place where there is, a, there is such a lacking presence of the gospel compared to other places, and it is really a joy to be here with you, to see another light for the gospel that longs to see it spread and increase the fame of Jesus. And so let's receive the instruction from the Word so that we can do that. Um, I don't know if any of you are big readers. I'm a huge reader, and I I really enjoy uh, a good book. I I spend a lot of time in kind of theological books because I'm a pastor, uh, but I enjoy a good novel. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if you have uh, ever been in the kind of story that has a lot of multiple storylines that are kind of running at the same time, and you're tracking several different characters through the book. And if you do like that kind of story, then perhaps you have been through this particular kind of trauma. It's the trauma that happens whenever you're reading a book late at night, right before bed, and the story's getting good, and all of a sudden... Like all the little pieces, all the little missing components to the story are starting to come out. It's starting to make sense. You're like, all right, I can sense it's coming, and you're turning the pages, and then right when you get to the good stuff, the chapter ends. You're like, one more. I'll read one more chapter. And so you turn to the next chapter only to find out that it shifted to the storyline of a different character. You ever had that happen to you? Yeah, it's frustrating because now you're like, now I've got to read another chapter before I get back to that. Now, now authors do that. It's a good writing technique because it keeps you reading, doesn't it? I mean, it's a really, it make, a lot of good books use that technique. And it's a technique that was used in uh, the Scripture as well here. It's something called, the big word is intercalation. It's, it's, we've got these two stories that are labeled over top of each other. Now, maybe in modern authors, they'll give you a whole chapter to somebody before they switch to somebody else. But in our, in our passage today that we just read, I want you to notice that there's an interplay of two different stories that are happening. It's almost as though you're reading along, you're reading about Peter, and then suddenly you're like onto the story of Jesus. And then you're back onto the story of Peter. Now, why would the author do that? Well, he's doing it for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is, is perhaps because he wants you to see these two events happening at the same time. So that you're seeing, like, as Jesus stands faithfully before his accusers, it's almost like you're hearing Peter's denial in the same moment, in the same breath. But the other reason is there are two things, there are two dramas that bring into focus two truths that are foundational to all of Christian doctrine, and that's this, the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of man. One of Jesus' best followers, his dearest, most outspoken followers, failed him in denial. And Jesus, in contrast to his denial, stands steadfast, humbly before his accusers. You see, Christ's faithfulness and Peter's faithlessness. You see, Christ's courage and Peter's cowardice. You see, his sacrificial love and and Peter's self-preserving lies. And in effect, you see Jesus and Peter 
encountering two different kinds of interrogation with very different responses. And here's the big idea. Here's the big truth of the passage I want to bring to you this morning, and it's this. Because of the sinful nature of man, even God's best followers fail to follow Jesus perfectly. Therefore, Jesus must go to the cross to secure salvation, to take the wrath of God and to display the glory of God in His grace to even the worst of followers. And that's our our movements for the morning as we look at the passage, as we go through the interplay of Peter and Jesus. Let's look at the first thing. Even the best of followers fail in spite of good intentions. Look at verse number 15. It says this. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, this unnamed disciple, people kind of say, well, who is this guy? Uh, You see the unnamed disciple a lot in the Gospel of John. Some will say this is probably John. Some will say it's somebody else who had some kind of connection to the high priest because he's able to get him into this special kind of court area. Um, But just suffice it to say, not to spend too much time figuring out who this mystery man is, you have another person that's set in kind of a distance from Peter where you have someone else who's going to be faithful in this moment who, who Peter doesn't stay faithful. But here's what he says. He says, Peter follows Jesus, and so did this other disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest. And he enters into the courtyard of the high priest. So the question would be, well, why does, what causes Peter to follow? He was just there in the scene that you saw last, last time that you gathered where, Peter, where Jesus was in complete control of that situation. That sounds like a, a great message. But what causes Peter to follow? Is it, is it bravery? I mean, he's going to be, we can criticize him for his, his fear in a few moments, and I think it'd be a fair criticism. But I mean, just a few verses ago, you've got him, although he's misguided, I mean, he's lopping off somebody's ear to defend Jesus. I mean, he does something. Was it out of love? I mean, do you think Peter genuinely loved Jesus with a passion? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that had to be there as well. I think everything that Peter says about his devotion to Jesus is things that he wants to be true. He loved Jesus. He was willing to die for Jesus. And in his his best mind, he thought, yes, that's exactly what I would do. He wanted to be close to Jesus. It was the longing of his heart that he would be the epitome of the devotion that he gave utterance to. But he falls short of it, doesn't it? In spite of his good intentions. I said I lived in, in Salt Lake City, and when I did, I was a school teacher uh, for a number of years over in West Valley City. I taught at one of the schools for new Americans. It was a, a lot of immigrant students, and it was awesome. I, it was my favorite job I've ever had in my life. And uh, every, I was a, one of the classes that I taught, a, 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 I taught a couple, not speaking classes, um, a couple different classes on, uh, of math. And so I taught 7th and 8th grade math, and I would have these students who would come in, and I would sometimes have students who were really struggling. And I had this one little boy who came in. And he said, you know what? He said, you know what, Mr. Moon? He said, I really want to get every point that I can this semester. Wow, this is the kind of school where you could redo your homework and you could get the points back if you miss something. He goes, I'm going to get every single point. I said, man, I said, that is a great goal. I said, you go for it, little dude. Man, you're gonna, I, hope you, I hope you can do it. Well, as you might imagine, partway through the semester, he comes up to me again. He goes, Mr. Moon, I'm okay with a B+. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. And, and you know what? That, that kind, of, uh, kind of settling for something less is something that maybe works in you know, an elementary school world. And I think a lot of folks, when they come to Jesus, they think that it, he's just going to settle for my, me trying my best. 
Like, if I just do my best, then that's what's going to make him accept me. But Jesus is the one, as God, who sets the standard. And the standard is perfection. And here in this, this, this moment, in this narrative, you see that one of Jesus' best followers fails to keep the perfect standard. And he falls short. He loved Jesus. But when his love was tested in a different way, when it was tested in the fires of loneliness and isolation and in fear, and whether he likes it or not, he doesn't come up with the grades he desires. And and that's something that we have to consider. Like, maybe you have really good intentions being here today. I mean, this seems like a really great church. And maybe you know some of these great people. And you're like, you know what, those are great people. I'm going to come to this gathering. I want to be like those great people. And maybe you have really good intentions with coming even to church this morning. Maybe you you sang with a full heart of devotion this morning. But then when you start looking at the the totality of your life, and you start thinking, you know, actually, but but I, I still cower before my coworkers or my classmates. And we start to realize that we're a lot more like Peter in this story than maybe we would care to admit. Because we're the failing follower. Well, even the best of followers fail in spite of their good intentions. And they fail when they fear man. Look at verse number 17. Let's read this one. It says, The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? It's like he's, she's assuming it's going to be no. Like, not you, surely. Not you too, huh? Now, the text does not really give us a reason for his response. Uh, people have, have postulated lots of different reasons why he might have done this. You know, maybe it was the rite of passage to get into the courtyard. Maybe he had to do this this time. Maybe he was just trying to protect himself from harm. Or maybe he was embarrassed in this moment. But what we know for sure is that Peter does not fear something. He really doesn't have a sense of fear about denying Jesus in this moment. Instead, he chose the fear to fear the question of a servant girl. He's bowled over by the searching gaze of this young woman and her incriminating remark. He fearfully refuses to be identified in a relationship to Jesus. Now, now in this passage, there's some insider-outsider language that's happening. Because in one sense, Peter is an insider. He's, he's been given some special access. I mean, he's there inside this high priestly courtyard. This is a special place to be, okay? He's been given some access. He's an insider. But what you see in this passage is although he's an insider, he starts acting really quickly like an outsider because in, in Peter's life, he has been given, uh, he's a much better insider, if you could think about it a different way, because he's been given access to the true high priest, the greater high priest, Jesus. And suddenly, he acts like an outsider because he values the opinion or the approval or he's seeking something from the people around this fire more than he values the opinion and approval of Christ. And so maybe we could ask, well, if we could redo this scene, if we could reset it, what, what should Peter have done? And, and you start to think about that. And you're like, well, it's actually pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, he should have publicly confessed his faith in Jesus like he said he would. 
He should have willingly accepted the consequence that might have come from it. It it seems so plain, doesn't it? But in, in the moment, his mind was clouded by the fear that he sees. I think about how many of us, like when we, we face different situations of what it means to actually represent Jesus in a world that hates Jesus, that hates Jesus through their extreme religiosity or hates Jesus just through their blatant hatred of him and his claim that he has on his life. And we start to think so quickly about the cost that might come with it, and we make quick knee-jerk reactions that would cause us to actually be more of a denier than someone who actually stands in place for Jesus and says, no, no, I, I'm one of his. I... I think about this, I think if we were to just take that fear component out, it just seems so obvious what to do. And we so quickly overcomplicate things because we're afraid of the consequences that might come from it. The rejection we might face, the, the financial benefits we might lose, the, the weird glares we might get, just for believing what the Bible says. I, I remember my wife, she was a few years ago, she's a, she read a book with a, a number of, of girls that were, they were trying, or not, women, not girls, um, women. And uh, so she read this book with these women. It was really, they were just trying to encourage each other in their own uh, gospel telling. And there was a quote she pulled out of the book, and I can't remember the book. I I tried to find it. I I don't know what it was, but she pulled this quote from this book. She said, John, you got to hear this. Because we were, at the time, I remember we were just facing this this kind of circumstance where we were just like this solo light for Christ in this, in hundreds of relationships, you know, people that didn't know Jesus. And she said, this was, the quote said something like this. It was like, you know, those who, who don't know Christ, they're more shocked by our silence about it than they are offended by the message that we have. It's like they're surprised. They're more surprised that you don't talk about it if it is what, it, what you say it is than they are, like, offended by what may be contradictory to the way they see the world. And I, and I think we see that in ourselves. We see that in Peter. And we find ourselves here in this moment wondering Are we the failing follower? Well, even the best of followers fail in spite of their best intentions when they fear man and when they overestimate their own strength. Peter didn't know himself as well as he may have thought. And in some ways, he thought that he knew himself better than Jesus did. If you were to just take your mind back a few chapters, which you've been in the book of John, it seems like, for a long time, so this may be back a few months. This is what Peter says about himself in John 13, 36. He says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You know, friends, if the gospel has one agenda in your life, it is to convince you that your performance is not the basis of your relationship to Jesus. It's not the basis of your acceptance before God. And so God actually allows you to fail so that you can see his grace, not your righteousness. That's the basis of your acceptance. The biggest enemy to the gospel is self-sufficiency. One brother who had converted from Islam to Christianity, he said this. He said, Christ had to deliver me from my unrighteousness. He said, but you know my wife? She had to be delivered from a church righteousness, which was a lot harder. It's not your sin that keeps you from Jesus sometimes. It's actually your self-righteousness. And there was no disciple who took greater comfort in his own work or his effort or his moral standing than Peter. Nothing he said lacked confidence to his own, his own blunders sometimes. I mean, there, there was little doubt in his mind that he could do what he set his mind to do. And it just didn't seem to register that he was imperfect, that he had faults, that he was a failure in his own right, that he was a sinner 
And Peter's denial of Jesus, just as Jesus predicted, it did something. It shattered the false veneer of morality. It was like pulling out the bottom piece on a Jenga puzzle. And it just comes crashing down. And Jesus, in his wisdom, knew that in preparing this particular saint, he needed to be crushed. And I'm going to tell you, that's an experience that we all have to have. We have to come to the point where we realize there is no lasting comfort that can be found in our morality. Peter needed to be broken. But before we can get a breath to kind of see, all right, well, what happens? The scene shifts, the chapter turns, and we're on to somebody else. But John does leave us with something. He leaves us standing around this fire. And coming off of the page of your Bible is the smell of charcoal smoke. And you're supposed to have that hanging in the air as you then look at Jesus before we come back to it again. Well, let's look at Jesus. Peter was sincere, but even the best of followers failed. Therefore, our next point, Jesus had to go to the cross. What we see in this passage is that Jesus goes to the cross condemned already through an unjust trial. Now, this trial, I think this trial is only recorded in John, and that's because of just a position I've taken on this, and I'll just tell you, this is just, I'm just kind of making a call on this. If you're to study this passage out, one of the things that you'll find people asking is like, so who is the high priest that we're talking about? Because the passage says, you know, it's like Annas is going to send him to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, and the next thing you know, the high priest is asking Jesus some questions, and you know, when the, when the guy hits Jesus, he says, is this how you talk to the high priest? And then at the very end, all of a sudden it says, and Annas then sent him to the high priest. Like, Wait a minute. I thought Caiaphas was the high priest. Well, who, who's talking here? Now, I, I think it's Annas because Annas would have been like, if you were to kind of put it in a category, he was, a, he was the high priest. He was deposed by Roman authorities, but then five of his son-in-laws became high priests. So Annas is a little bit of the godfather of the high priests, okay? He, he holds immense power in this family, Okay. And uh, as far as it would go, it kind of worked like U.S. presidents, where if somebody was called the high priest at one point, they would still be called high priest throughout. So I think that's why we get this reference. Now, it, it could be Caiaphas, and I could be wrong. And there's reasons why people say, no, it, no, it is Caiaphas. It, it, one, one man actually put it this way, and I thought this was an interesting take as well. Maybe we're supposed to be confused about who the high priest is, because in this passage, there's only one person who's behaving like the high priest should, the true and greater high priest. And so, here we have this passage. He goes before this trial, and Jesus gets led here to this, this one, and he gets, he gets faced with these people, and the line of question, questioning is, is supposed to be what I think was actually gathering evidence for the formal trial that the other Gospels talk about. In verse 19, it says that he questions him about his disciples and his teaching. And I don't think those are two separate things. It's not like he's like, all right, tell me a little bit about your followers, okay? Tell me a little bit about your doctrine. I think those two things are connected. Because I think the reason why is I, I think whoever it is, whether it's Annas or whether it's Caiaphas, is trying to figure out, all right, if we kill this guy, what kind of following are we dealing with afterwards? And I think even in Jesus' defense, he defends his disciples. And he also makes it so clear that they will be able to carry on what he's done because he's done it so plainly before everyone. Jesus goes bound to Caiaphas, not as someone who receives a fair trial with proper witnesses, because the sense that you get from this whole thing is that he's already found guilty. 
Now, this approach to Jesus is not locked in history, is it? The approach that he is condemned already without a fair hearing. I, I feel like there are many, maybe, you, maybe here, who actually condemn Christ without ever having read his book. They've condemned Christ without ever having listened to his claims. They walk around with a sense of bravado. They explain how foolish it is to believe that a man came and lived and died and rose from the dead. And as they explain with all their bravado why they don't believe this, the, real, the real reality is, is that it's not intellectually honest because they've never even heard him. Because in this trial, as they're supposed to be bringing forward witnesses, they're just trying to find what's the stuff we can hang him with. When Jesus goes to the cross through an unjust trial, and he goes to the cross with integrity, let's take a moment to look at his response. Boy, we could spend a lot of time looking at his response. And as, as I understand you guys do gather in small groups, man, maybe just look at this. You want to know a great way to go through the Gospels. Go through the Gospels looking for this, how Jesus responded for people. I mean, it's, it'd be a great read, but let's look at just one of his responses. When he's questioned about his disciples and his teaching, he responds with this in verse number 20. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. In other words, what I say publicly is consistent with what I say privately. And there are many religious leaders and religions who, who like to hide the message up front, and they only tell the, the full story to the people that are already in. They get you to commit to it, and then they give you the rest of the story. But Jesus is like, no, that's, that's, not, that's not the way it is. My public stance is, is, is exactly the way it is in private. And upon making these statements, this hot-headed officer, he goes to Jesus and he strikes him, and he says, is this how you answer the high priest? And every one of us who knows who Jesus is, we're like, is this how you answer the high priest? Like, you got it backwards, man. But how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with truth. He calls out the illegitimacy of this trial. He says, he, give me some witnesses. If what I said wrong is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. He's just this epitome of justice confronted by injustice, of love confronted by hate, power confronted by this faltering monster. And to the officer, he says, since there's no proper witnesses on this trial, why don't, why don't you go ahead and be a witness to the wrong? And the man has nothing to say. But Jesus had to go to the cross. He goes through this, and why? Because Jesus had to go to the cross to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, John has done this a couple of times. There, he doesn't want us to miss some stuff in this section, so he's done a couple of little callbacks, and he does one more. As John writes, he includes this detail about Caiaphas, the acting priest at the time. He says in verse 14, if you look back up, I'm kind of going up and down a little bit, but back up at verse 14 it says, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, he's referring back to something. So this is probably back, who knows how long ago, back to John 11, six months ago, maybe, I don't know. In case you forgot, he's going to say, don't forget this detail. I talked about this already. And also, in case you're thinking like, wow, is Caiaphas making some theological claim about the substitutionary atonement? I don't think so. <laughs> Caiaphas is interested in saving his own position of power. Jesus was a threat to them, and so his suggestion was just to let Jesus be this scapegoat to take the fall. But John knows, and he clarified in chapter 11, didn't he? In verse 51, it says, he, referring to Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He gives an unconscious prophecy. 
that Jesus would provide substitutionary atonement. Now, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, worshipers would bring a sacrifice and an animal through a ritual to receive absolution and forgiveness of their sins. The death of the animal was to, was to be a symbol of the punishment that was due to the worshiper. The Bible puts it this way, the wages of sin is death. The sacrifice had to die so that the worshiper could be saved. And in all this Old Testament ritual, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, there was a measure of disproportion between the offerer and the offering. Between the liability of the person and the shedding of the blood of an animal. It wasn't quite equal, was it? I mean, the sin that man had, had heaped up for themselves was, was wrath from God. And the, the sin that we tried to place on this animal, the killing of the animal, I mean, there's no way that that could ever be a substitute for this. And what you see in Jesus is that the gracious offering was greater than the sin. The sacrifice more effective than the liability. Jesus' substitutionary atonement was transcendent. When He died on the cross, when He bore the punishment for sin, its efficacy, its perfection, its finality was greater in proportion so that we could be so secure in what He's done. Hebrews 9, 12 put it this way. It says, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Jesus is the true high priest. And although he wasn't treated like one, he acted like one. And this high priest wasn't going to be offering a sacrifice that was going to have to be redone and redone and redone. He was the sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Now, the passage has laid out for us. Even the best of followers fail. So Jesus had to go to the cross to be a substitute in order to, for our last point, to secure salvation for even the worst of followers. You know, there are certain sounds that just grate on you, aren't there? Fingernails on a chalkboard, children's toys. And there are certain smells that bring back memories, aren't there? You know, I imagine for Peter, for the rest of his life, whenever he heard a rooster, he wanted to strangle it. And I'm sure that for the rest of his life, when he smelled charcoal, it brought back memories. Now, Peter is such a presence throughout the gospel. But the last real mention of Peter that you guys are going to see for a while as you go through the book of John is, this is it. He's going to go dark for a while. Jesus told the disciples that they all would forsake him. Peter stands up and says, not me. And Jesus is like, you're going to be worse than everybody. You're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, whatever. No way. I'm all in. He flexes his spiritual muscles in front of everybody, right? And a few hours later, he's standing around that fire. A couple teenagers scare him to death. You weren't one of Jesus' disciples, were you? And he says, what, who, no, never heard of him. And that's where our narrative picks back up. He's still around the fire. The smell of the smoke fills the pages again. We're thrust back into this moment only to see things go from bad 
to worse. Now, maybe we could justify the first denial. Maybe if it was just that one, we could think through a bunch of reasons of how he had, was really doing the right thing by kind of getting where he needed to be so he could like look out for Jesus. But, but the, the narrative doesn't let us do that because he's going to do it again and he's going to do it again. And the last time it comes on, it's like it's this guy who was there when he lopped off the ear. Like, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to forget the face of the guy who like cut off my cousin's ear. It's, it's emphatic. And he's like, it's not, I'm not him. Peter needed to be broken. But Jesus wasn't done with Peter because he also needed to be restored. And I don't want to ruin the end of the story for you, but there is some poetic form to it. Because in the very end of John, you're going to find Peter and Jesus around another charcoal fire. And Jesus, there in that moment, lets him reverse all his denials. He even redeems the smell. He's going to remember something for the rest of his life. He's going to see his sinfulness, and he's going to see the grace of God in Jesus. Even the worst followers fail, so Jesus had to go to the cross to secure salvation for even the worst You know, that's because the gospel is not just about Jesus' story, but it's about ours. Through Jesus, everything has changed. It hasn't changed for Peter yet. The gospel is incomplete until the resurrection has been applied to Peter. And this is where it meets real life. His sacrifice was big enough for the worst. And the gospel was big enough for you. In self-righteousness or in unrighteousness, both need Jesus And Jesus is the foundation for all of Christian discipleship. It's not effort, it's not skill, it's not talent. One man said it this way, Peter only had half the gospel. (laughs) He knew that God loved him, he was still trying to prove himself. And that's so many of us. You know there's grace, you know there's love in God, and you want to draw close to him, but you've never really learned to rest in him. That it really has finished the work of your salvation, that there really is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you've done to make him love you you less. Peter exemplifies the paradox of Christian discipleship. Our spiritual life finds its source not in good intentions, but in a good shepherd who willingly gave himself for us. You know, when I was a, when I was a young Christian, one of the first men that ever discipled me was a guy who um, I, I worked with him at a church plant in northern Minneapolis, and he sat down with me, and he could just smell it on me. He's like, dude, you are a super self-righteous guy. I mean, you just feel like you have put your spiritual life together. And he said, I want to help you with this. I don't see why I need help, but sure. And he, he's like, I want you, I want to give you something. And he knew, I, he knew I was a reader. He knew I liked books. I want to give you this book. You can have it if you can memorize a passage out of it. I was like, done. I can do that. Give me one more book. And he gave me this little book of gospel meditations, and it had this little quote in there that said this. He said, the gospel encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with God. The gospel encouraged me to rest in my righteous standing with God, a standing which Christ himself accomplished and always maintains for me. I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task, I can now put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's grace to others. Listen, 
Christian discipleship is not best defined as a work or an action done for God, but as an action that's done in response to God. And maybe that's where you're at. You have good intentions, you feel like you need to be in church, but you still don't know how to rest in Jesus. Now, our passage doesn't give us a whole lot of hope to hang on. After that rooster crows, it ends. But the fact that it's even recorded implies that this is a turning point in Peter's experience. It's going to be a different outcome than Judas. Judas and his failure falls into despair. Peter is going to return, and Jesus is going to draw him back. See, when Jesus chooses his disciples, he sees your future failures just like he saw Peter's. You know what he told Peter? He told Peter, he said, I'll pray for you. I'm praying for you. And Jesus' sustaining power kept him and keeps you. The gospel is this. Jesus has given you his acceptance as a gift. The work is complete. His last words on the cross were not, I've done 90%, now finish the rest, okay? There's really nothing you could do to make God love you more. Understand Jesus. Understanding the nature of the gospel leads you to this profound rest in your spirit. Isn't it interesting, as we, just as we close it out, as we, isn't it interesting that Peter, no, it, we have no indication that he tries to suppress the story of how he denied Jesus three times. Well, we all sin, but whose sin can be compared to, to Peter's? I mean, the Lord Jesus himself, the most important person who ever lived, was on trial, and Peter, one of his closest disciples, denies him right there when he's most lonely and vulnerable moment. And for the rest of Peter's life, indeed for the rest of history, his greatest failure gets rehearsed every time we tell the story. So where then is the hope? Well, the hope is found in realizing that Jesus walked his lonely road to the cross in order that he might be, this is what the Bible says, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that upon him the chastisement that was the chastisement that brought us peace, and that with his stripes we would be healed. For every denial, Jesus walked the lonely road to the cross to pay for it. That was Peter's own gospel hope. In fact, it's a hope that in, when he gets to write his letters, he's going to talk about it and find that salvation is in Jesus only in himself. Peter exulted in the lonely achievement of the Savior whom he had failed, but who had never forsaken him. A victory that supplied gospel hope for himself and for all who turned to Jesus in faith. Even the best of followers fail. Therefore, Jesus had to go to the cross to secure salvation for even the worst of followers like us. Well, church, I want to invite uh, the band and the prayer team to come up as we take um, some time to respond. We'll respond with singing. We'll respond with those who pray. I want to give you just a few. There's a lot of ways you can think about this passage and draw out application as you reflect on your own life. I want to give you a few directing ones that maybe have helped to you, but these aren't the only ways to respond to the passage. You know, perhaps for some of us, the Holy Spirit is using this as a turning point for you as you consider Peter. Maybe it's your own rooster that's crowing. It's bringing you to a stark realization of your failure and your inability to earn righteousness before God. 
And the good news that in our failure, we're not like left there to just feel bad about being failure, but to be found so secure that Jesus is like, I just paid for every failure you had. Jesus chooses and uses failures. So maybe you could respond in one of these ways. John said throughout his book that the, this gospel, the gospel of John, was written that you would believe. Do you believe this morning? Do you believe that no matter the sin, he welcomes all who come to him? Have you ever come to him as your Savior? Maybe you aren't a failing follower. Maybe it's possible you're not a follower at all. <laughs> and you come here and you're thinking that the way to be made right with Jesus is to perform, to perform, to perform, and then maybe he will accept you if you're lucky and you do just enough. But the gospel to you this morning is that you can just come in your brokenness and your failure, and He will restore. What does Jesus do with His failing followers? He restores them. Call on the name of Jesus. Be saved. Grab one of the brothers or sisters here. Tell them. Say, look, I, I want to have a real relationship with Jesus. Help me know how to do that. I'm going to tell you, if you turn to Him in faith and repentance, He will welcome you in. Perhaps you are a failing follower in some way. What, what does God do with his failing followers? I said he restores them. The gospel is big enough for failing followers. Maybe you thought through this and you, you start thinking about your own way that you live out in the public when you get welcomed into the arena and you're like, man, I, I've denied Christ. Have you denied Christ? This point of this passage isn't to make you feel bad so that you'll like buckle yourself up and not deny him ever again. No, it's to turn from your sin and receive forgiveness from Jesus and empowerment to walk with him. Have you ever experienced opposition or persecution for following Jesus? Think about this. How does Jesus' example encourage you as you face the fears that may come in standing for him, being known? The gospel is something that is told. And the only way light spreads through this valley is that Christ's disciples continue to tell his message. Maybe consider how can you guard yourself now and prepare yourself to be ready to be faithful to Christ even when you're put under severe pressure. I've, I've had so many individuals, college students and employees of different businesses who come and they're just so quick to say, yeah, 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 I, I get it, I get it, I get it, but my work doesn't let me do that kind of thing. And so this must not apply to me. And so in every arena of life, they're like, I, I'm just probably not somebody who's supposed to share the good news. Would you count the cost? Would you be ready to be faithful? Would you be ready to let Jesus actually handle it? Because like last time, he was in control of the whole scene. Just like he's in control of your workplace or your school or your home. So let's turn to Jesus as we respond. And I'll turn it over to the team here.